Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Philippians chapter 2, and we will be in verses 14 through 18 today. Philippians chapter 2. Maybe you have at one time or another been in a store and this shelf, you're looking at it and what you need is right here and you're looking for it and it's empty, but you see way up there is what you need. And you need help, right? You need somebody with a ladder or you need somebody taller to come by and say, can you hand me that up there? And usually there's a sign, please ask for help. They don't really want to see you climbing the shelves. It doesn't, doesn't work out well. This message, as it flows out of where we have been, looking at Christ, who he is, all that we have in Christ, his humiliation, his exaltation. And then Paul said, and we studied it last week, that we're to work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And like James said a moment ago, that, that crushes us. How, how do I do this? And then he says, and it is God who is working in you. God works it in you and we work it out. We access what he has done in us, what he is doing in us. It's his power at work in the life of a believer. And someone might say after that, Paul, how do we do this? How do we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? What does that look like? Do I need to, you know, go a month of fasting? Do I need to sell all my goods and and sell my vehicles and walk everywhere? What do I need to do? And he answers that question. If we as individual believers want to have a testimony that shines as a light in this world, if we as a church will have a testimony that's refreshing in our community, Tell us the secret, Paul. What do we need to do? All right, here we go. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? So this morning, if we're going to grow in grace together, then how do we, let's answer this question, how do we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, Paul gets right to it, all right? Number one, stop all complaining and arguing. Stop all complaining and arguing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, in the Greek structure, if if you were, you know, holding a Greek manuscript 
of the New Testament, this is one of those phrases, this is a sentence that actually begins with, all things do without. So it's a priority. It's not some things, a few things, try. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So for us as Christians, I think we can agree, we can do most things, we can do some things, even most things without murmuring and arguing. But all things? How do we do all things without grumbling and disputing? So Paul helps us with this. We need to resist temptations to focus on self. And this is what he's getting at here. Whenever we feel that we have been personally slighted, oh, I've been wronged. They did me wrong. This is a private complaint under our breath. We're tempted to groan. We're tempted to talk back. We're tempted to do what, it, that first word is grumbling. Gongasmos is the Greek word. And it's the idea of, even the word murmuring, murmuring, gongasmos, gongasmos. You know, you like, and, and, the, and the boss says, time for a meeting. You know, parents, the children, hey, clean your rooms. Wives, the husbands, could you, you know, pick up your dishes? Hey, the price of gas went up. Hey, a new tax law is coming out. Right? This gets us. This is, this is the under. This is sometimes it's not even audible. It's just in our heart and in our heart. I don't want this. I, I didn't ask for that. I didn't. That's under the breath. This is this grumbling. This is murmuring or muttering that we're, we're inwardly and secretly displeased. It's a private complaint under our breath. And Paul is, he's exposing the heart of man. He's exposing our hearts. Oh, I don't like this. I don't, no, we haven't even said anything to anybody yet. But the Lord knows. And then he uses the word disputing. This term refused to arguing and debating. It's fueled by a contentious spirit. So now all of this murmuring, all of this, you know, simmering in my heart, inside, internally, now I can't contain it anymore. Now it's coming into words, and I'm going to say something, and I'm going I'm to go at it. I'm going to argue for my way. It's fueled by a contentious spirit that I'm focusing on myself. Now, it's not wrong to ask a question, but it's wrong to maintain a spirit of rebelliousness against God's word, against God's people, or even church leadership based on preferences or personalities. We listen to a concern, and when we hear somebody voice a complaint, what are we trying to get at? Do I need to listen to what is being said? What is the heart of the person? What is the spirit? What is fueling this issue? Is it God's glory or this person's glory, their personal desire, their will? Even as church leadership, as we walk through decisions, as we walk through building program and budgets and finances and ministry, 
The point is for us as men to gather and say, whose glory are we most concerned with and whose good? Our good or the congregation's good for the glory of God? And that requires push and pull and give and take. But it's all to, we're always assessing what is my motive here? What's my heart's desire here? So we need to remember and remember illustrations that have been provided for us in Scripture. Paul writes in Romans 15 and verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So everything that we read in Scripture is to bolster up. There are people who have come before us. How did they function? How did they respond? What was their heart attitude? What, what was their conversation? What was their conduct? Now here in this, what we've just read, Philippians 2, Paul's writing to Gentiles. Gentiles would not have had a, a very robust history of Israel. Okay, Most of us probably don't have a robust history of Israel unless we've studied and so it's helpful that we look back and we realize our heritage comes down through the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God's plan of redemption is stemmed from beginning, from Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament, bringing us Messiah, Jesus. So let's think about the children of Israel. God heard their cries when they were in Egypt, they were in bondage, they were in slavery, and the Lord heard their cries, and it moved him to action. So I want us to be very clear that it is not wrong for us to cry out to the Lord. If it was wrong for us to cry out to the Lord, then you would have to lift the book of Psalms out of the Bible and put it somewhere else. The whole book of Psalms is people crying out to the Lord, and Jesus and the apostles often used the Psalms in their prayers and in their teaching. The Lord heard their cries. He heard their groaning. He heard their, their pain and their agony, and he responded by, Moses, I'm sending you to deliver my people. Go get them. The people of God, they complained though. <laughs> Moses arrives, the Lord has sent me. I am has sent me, and we're getting out of here. Woo! Moses, Moses, he's our man. He goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, let my people go. This is what God, the creator God of all things says, let my people go, Pharaoh. Who is your God that I should obey him? You know what your problem is? You guys just have too much time on your hands. Let's take away all the straw and let's keep the quota the same. They've got to keep making the bricks and their burdens get heavier and they find out what's going on. Why, why is our task remaining the same, but it's gotten harder? Oh, because Moses came in here. Well, how did they respond? Exodus 5:20. <laughs> it changed quickly. quickly. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. This is the elders speaking to Moses and Aaron. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Wait, they were just the ones saying, yes, we're getting out of here. And it didn't work out according to plan. And immediately they flip on a dime and now they're ready to just execute Moses and Aaron. Well, 
go through the 10 plagues. They're delivered. They're out of Egypt. This is great. Sorry, Moses, we question you. Then they come up to the edge of the Red Sea. And how are we going to get through the Red Sea? This is a problem. And here comes Pharaoh's army. And they're looking and they're panicked and they're worried. Exodus 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. (laughs) Think about it. They said to Moses, we can't wait to see how the Lord's going to deliver us. No, that's not what they said. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be, zip your lips. Stop the grumbling. Stop the complaining. Stop the doubting. Trust in the Lord. The Lord is not doing this for his people. He's not responding to a wonderful prayer meeting that happened on the banks of the Red Sea. He is responding because he's gracious, not because they're good people. He is responding because he is good. And what they thought was their ruin and their end, and they're ready. We told you we shouldn't, you should have left us alone and we could have just died in Egypt. The Lord was actually working to bring an end to the Egyptian army before their eyes. Well, it didn't work out for good for Pharaoh and his army. They were drowned in the sea. Israel crosses through on dry land. Imagine that, walking through with walls of water on either side. Come on, if you're a kid, if you're an adult and still feeling like a kid, you're walking by the water just like, this is amazing, you know? Just putting your hand in like, look, it's water, you know? We're walking through, walking through the middle on dry land. They get to the other side. Pharaoh's army is drowned in the sea. And what do we find them doing just three days later? They're grumbling again. We got no water. Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. This is awesome. This is great. The Lord delivered us. They're all happy. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people, here it is again, grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? Okay, understand how it always works. What are we going to drink? 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 There's nothing to drink. I'm thirsty. What are we going to drink? What are we going to drink? They begin to grumble. It builds up out of their hearts, out of their, into their mouths, and they're grumbling. Well, the Lord provides. They drink that water. He, he takes care of it. Exodus 16, they grumble against Moses and Aaron when they're, they're hungry. I mean, come on now. Who doesn't grumble when you're hungry? What do we call it? Uh, you're getting hangry. You know, I've, been, I've been accused of this, getting hangry. Exodus 16, 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And the people of Israel said to them, would that we, they can't, they can't lose this song. They can't stop singing this song. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Okay, this is what happens when you think about, oh, the good old days when whoever was president. Oh, the good old days when whatever. Like there weren't troubles then? They didn't sit there with meat, just endless meat and barbecues and boils and broils. They were slaves in Egypt. And our mind messes with us and says, back then in the good old days when other people and this and that, they're doing it. We ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Put yourself in Moses' shoes. We love you, Moses. Moses' appreciation day followed up, and you're just trying to kill us, you murderer. <laughs> oh, then they get thirsty again. The Lord provided, you know, there. I'm just going across the highlights of their grumbling. We're not even hitting all of them. They were thirsty another time, Exodus 17. Notice how quickly these chapters are, are just one after another of the people's unfaithfulness. Uh, Exodus 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people, here they go again, quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Everybody give us water to drink. Come on, louder. Get the kids involved. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? That's who you are. You hate kids. And even worse than that, you hate animals. Our children are our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, You think? What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. This is getting serious, Lord. You're going to have to intervene. Well, Moses had some family members, unless we think we can always, if I just had my family working with me, you know, if my family was on my job, everything would be good. Trust me, there's challenges working with your family, right? Well, Moses had, two, had a sister and a brother, Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Are you kidding me? Why did they have a problem with Moses? Because he had an Ethiopian wife, and they didn't think he should have that mixed marriage. In their hearts, they thought, who do you think you are? And you have married an Ethiopian woman? Surely this can't be of the Lord. Oh, if people through the generations in dealing with and forbidding, you know, certain ethnicities to marry other ethnicities would have only studied their Bibles? Because you have to think, who do people sound like that once forbidden, and it wasn't that long ago, I was at a Bible college when the first interracial married couple showed up at that college. Okay, so this isn't that long ago. And people actually from many in the South had scriptures where they thought they, they could justify and if they would have just read their Bibles, you have to say, who do, who do they sound most like? All right, here's Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman, in case you missed that the first time. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not 
uh, spoken through us also, and the Lord heard it. And you know what he did? He struck Miriam with leprosy. And you know what Moses did? He interceded for her. He prayed for her. Lord, please, that's my sister. Have mercy on her. And the Lord says, well, if she would have cursed her father, then she would be put outside of the camp for seven days. She's spoken against me. She's spoken against you. So leprosy for seven days. The people were commanded and they enter into the promised land. So Moses sent out 12 spies. 10 came back. Numbers chapter 14. 10 of them were complaining. Only Joshua and Caleb said, come on, let's go obey the Lord. Let's go. Let's do this. Numbers 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You seeing a pattern here? The whole congregation said to them, would that we, you got this memorized yet? Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. It almost makes you wonder if they had the campaign signs. You know, you see them things come out. You just can't wait to see more campaign signs on lawns. Would that we had died in Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Who's their issue with, really? The Lord. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader. Let's go back. Let's get out of here. Let's go back to Egypt. Well, in number 16, two chapters later, leaders rise up. They're saying, let's, let's do this. We got this. We don't have to follow Moses. We don't have to follow Aaron. And these men end up being swallowed in the ground that day with their families and everything they owned. Listen to what they said, number 1611, therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the, son of, uh, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Can't, you can't tell us what to do anymore. We're our own leaders. Verse 13, is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey? Out of, they're looking back to Egypt. The Lord has promised them to take them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and they're taking the word of the Lord and applying it to what he delivered them from in Egypt. That's what a false teacher does. They misuse scripture. They use verses to disarm people, but they misuse and abuse scripture. It is, a, is it a small thing you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us? Who put you in charge? Y'all remember what Moses was doing in the wilderness? And the Lord said, go Deliver my people? What'd he say? No. I don't want to go. I can't talk. Good, then take Aaron. He'll go with you. Moses didn't make himself in charge. The Lord sent him as a leader. Moreover, verse 14, you have not brought us into the land flowing of milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of the fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And so Moses went to them and said, all right, everybody, 
Here's a line. You're either with them or you're with the Lord. Choose. And if those men die a natural death, then I'm not from the Lord. But if the ground opens up and swallows everything, them included, and everything around them, then you'll know there's a big difference. And it was after that they complained the next day that Moses killed those people. We, had, we picked some good leaders in, the, in Moses. Moses opened up the ground, swallowed them up, and that's when the fiery serpents were sent. And then Moses interceded for the people, and the Lord said, here's the plan. I'm going to show you. You take a bronze serpent, and you put it up on a stake, and everybody that looks at that will live. Here's the, and, it, and it's all preparing for Jesus. We need somebody better than Moses, somebody better than Aaron, and it's Jesus. Well, the early church, not, not long after the birth of the church, we see the threat of complaining in Acts chapter 6. This is an infant church in Jerusalem. It's growing by leaps and bounds, but suddenly enters in this, this murmuring, this complaining. There's a neglect where the, the Jewish people involved, they're, they're overlooking, they're not caring well for those Hellenistic widows. And so there's neglect on one side, there's complaining on the other side. It's not good at all. They needed to communicate, hey, how can we help? What can we do? There are those who are in need of ministry rather than complain about their problem. So as we think about this and we think about in your marriage, in your home, in your family, in your workplace, as a citizen, in a church, how are we tempted to complain, to murmur, to groan? And what we're not saying is that don't communicate issues. No, we need to learn what is communicating and what is complaining? How am I approaching the topic? You never, you always, that, that, that sounds like complaining. That's grumbling, which is different than here's an issue. Can we please talk about this? Hey, here's a concern. Put any issue, family budget, plans, what you're going to do, all, what you're going to give, where you're going to serve, your schedules, all of these things. Communicate about that, which is different than complaining about it. Acts chapter 6, here's the threat. And this could have derailed the church in its infancy. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution there was an opportunity for the racial divide to split the church. Can we think about how, how tempting it is and how much is being fomented in our culture to split races, to split ethnicities? How are we impacting that as the people of God? Are, are we taking our eyes and turning our eyes to Christ or are we, are we constantly stirring up the differences between us and forgetting that we're all actually descended from Adam. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. We are part of the same human family. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul prompted a Gentile church, the church at Corinth, and he says this in a positive way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what's the command? Do all to the glory of God, not self, you all to the glory of God. So I cannot complain and argue to the glory of God. But I can communicate 
I can share to the glory of God. So number one, stop all complaining and arguing. Easy to do? <laughs> Impossible if he doesn't work in us to will for his good pleasure. And when he changes our desires, then you know what? We have, it happens on an internal of, Lord, I wanna please you. Forgive me of complaining. We'll stop all complaining and arguing when we stand out as children of God. And this is in verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You realize that complaining is the natural language of every people group on earth? Do you have to teach your kids to complain? All right, welcome to the family. You are now three months old. We're going to teach you how to complain. <laughs> Said no parent ever. We're born with the, ah, give me what I want now. Not fast enough. When we simply do not complain and do not argue, then people take notice around us because it's drastically different. It's otherworldly. We're speaking a different language than everybody else in our culture who are offended, who invent reasons to be victims. And there's no answer and there's no solution. But there is a solution in the gospel. And if we have been transformed by the gospel, then we've actually been made children of God. So then we stand out as children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So what is Paul saying? If we're gonna stand out as children of God, then we live our lives in a way that is above reproach. That you may be blameless and innocent. Okay, that is a life that is not, we're not sinless. None of us are sinless. But we're to live in a way that is above reproach. This is what it means to be blameless. Only Jesus lived a sinless life. But every child of God is called to live blamelessly. It's an expectation of those who would serve as an elder in the church. There can't be an accusation stick against you that you live a life in a trajectory of just sinfulness and rebellion. That person is, they're a gossip. They're always talking about other people. They're lazy, they're rude, they're careless, they're a thief, they're immoral, they're a jerk, they're stingy. People can make accusations, but if we're living a life that is Christ-like, people around are saying, yeah, I don't think we're talking about the same person. I know them, and I hear what you're saying, but it doesn't stick with them. They're different. Romans 16, 19, Paul writes to the church at Rome, he says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So we live our lives, God help us to live above reproach. Why would we want to live above reproach? Why would we want to live blamelessly? Because we've been adopted by God. We have a father in heaven. And Jesus said to the followers who follow him, our father who art in heaven, come on into the throne room, you have a father in heaven. We belong to God. 
This is the fundamental difference between a Christian and non-Christian. Because of Christ's work, we have repented of our sin and we trusted in Christ alone for our salvation. Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? If not, today is the day of salvation. And you don't have to wait for the end of a service to say, God, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. And I trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit, every time the word is open, the Holy Spirit is drawing men to salvation and women and children. We have been adopted by God. We have been justified and adopted into the family of God. This is a reality that overwhelms us with wonder. This is what John the Apostle is an old man. He writes to the church and, he, and everybody, he's so old, everybody's a child to him. You could be 90 and John's like, yeah, you're a child. And he says this, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. Okay, we've been called that and we are that. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be, future, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him we shall see him as he is. And all of this truth that he has just written, it has a cause and effect. Verse three is the effect. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I want my life to be purified, reconciled to what the reality is. I am justified in Christ. If you have repented of your sin and you've trusted in Jesus, then he sees you clothed in the righteousness of, of, of Christ. He sees you as if you've always perfectly obeyed, as if you have never sinned because he sees you in Christ. Now I have to reconcile my life to the reality and that's what John is saying. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Justification is that last word, pure. Sanctification is that purifies himself. That's our growing in Christ-likeness. And this all is Philippians 1.6. He'll finish the job. He started it in us, and he'll finish that work. We have been adopted by God. Therefore, we have been called out. We have been set apart for Jesus Christ. We haven't been set apart to self, to make much of me, no, I've been set apart to make much of Jesus, to live my life, to live our lives to the one who, uh, that we have been set apart for. That we're to be without blemish. When you hear this without blemish, what do you think of? What imagery starts to come up in your mind when you think of spotless, without blemish? Exactly, a lamb that those shepherds out on the hillside outside of Jerusalem were raising lambs, they couldn't even go in the temple. And they were raising lambs for sacrifice and there was great care that would go into those lambs because they were to be spotless, without blemish. And this is now, this is how we're to live out our lives and Paul says in the midst of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation. So here Paul is adopting the language from the Old Testament. He's using those analogies that Israel was a peculiar people, the people of God, and all around them were nations that hated them. Still all around Israel are nations that hate them to this day. How is that little speck of land still even belonging to Israel today? Because God's not finished with his work there. 
Read Romans 9, 10, and 11, okay? But we've been set apart. And so Paul is adopting that language, but then he adapts it to the church. And he says that we are in the middle of a perverse generation, and we're to shine as lights. Deuteronomy 32, 5, back to the Old Testament. They have dealt, and now this is uh, God speaking through Moses of his own people. They have de- dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Did you hear all the, you're going to kill us. Why'd you bring us out? We'll be our own leaders. We don't like you. Let's stone you. You hear what God says? They are the crooked and twisted generation. But God wasn't finished with them. And we're to shine as lights in the world. And this fast forwards us all the way to the New Testament with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, where he says in Matthew 5, 14, you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? Why, Jesus? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And what I believe Jesus is saying is that when they see believers, followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, Christians, and they see them act distinctively different. They talk differently. They live for different, a different higher purpose than self. Then people ask the question, like 1 Peter 3.15 says, what's this hope that you have in you? And we share with them the gospel. And when they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, guess who gets the glory? The Father. The Father gets the glory which is exactly what Paul has just written back in Philippians. He wrote the same thing, that all things, uh, uh, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, for his glory. Same thing. So loved ones, how do we work out our salvation? Well, stop all complaining and grumbling. Stand out as children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation And number three, share the message of life. Share the message of life. And this is where Paul says, hold fast, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So in light of Christ's return, Paul is thinking Jesus, his return can be at any moment and I have my eye on that day. You ever been walking somewhere and Someone's holding a light, you know, you're out in the woods or wherever and you give a light and the kid's like, I'll hold the light. Where does the light end up going? You're like, whoa, in the here, over there, in your eyes. You're like, hey, we need the light. Hold it forth in such a way that we can see where we're going and we don't walk off the trail or we, we don't miss something walking into the trail that we need to know is there. Like, this is the idea, holding forth the word of life. Let's put it out there where it does the good that the Lord intends for it to do. How do we do this? Well, we have to embrace the gospel. Have you embraced the gospel? Have you been changed by the gospel? Have you heard, received, and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is the word of life. 
This happened constantly in the New Testament that people heard this message and they changed. Everything about them changed as they heard the message of life, the word of life. Acts 5.20, the Lord's command to the apostles after they had been persecuted. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, can I just say something about that? How are we going to cram that into like a 20-minute talk on a Sunday? Do you realize that I am tasked with the responsibility to preach and teach all the words of this life? And that just comes by week after week after week, and we just lay another block on and another block of truth, 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 and God is changing us. And God is growing us in grace. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal, so what does the word of the Lord bring? Life. Appointed to eternal life believed. That we have confidence when we preach, when we hold forth the gospel, we are not responsible to make people believe. We can't do that. We hold forth the gospel, and you know what? As many are, as are appointed, you know, they will hear the message, and it will change their heart, and they will respond. God does what we can't do. Embrace the gospel, and then also hold to the gospel. Paul gripped firmly the gospel, and he held it out for every, everywhere he went, for everyone he met. He was constantly holding forth the word of life, the message of life. He kept his eye on the reality of Christ's second coming and he ran his race. He labored diligently for the cause of Christ. I don't know about you if you're a runner or not. I've tried to run a few times in my life. I hate running. It hurts, right? It, it hurts. I wake up the next day and I'm like, who ran over me? I mean, I can run from my driveway to the next driveway and then it's about like, wow, you know, did I lose any weight yet? Am I in shape yet? Is, my, is it better? Running is hard. He uses a, a word that's, that's hard. But there are runners who love running. And for them, it's hard to not run. They love to run, to labor, to work. And it reminds me of th this, this song that was written, I think it was written in the 60s by Esther Kerr Rusthold. And it says, sometimes the day seems long. Our trial's hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. And I love this chorus. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So, bravely run the race till we see Christ. Wonder where they were studying when they wrote that song hold to the gospel and also advance the gospel. Advance the gospel. So we just don't embrace it. I've been saved and I hold on to the gospel. You know, I, I, I love my Bible and I love my Bible studies and I love my word and I love my word. Uh, it's, that's good, but it's not all about you. It's not all about me. 
go where it needs to go, advance the gospel. Paul was driven to spend and be spent for others. Once he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus, he looked with his mind's eye to eternity and everything he did was filtered through, does this matter for eternity? He didn't run in vain and he didn't labor in vain. He knew that his life would not be wasted. And when he talks about that he would be uh, proud, that I may be proud that I did not, this isn't a self-centered pride. This is like a grandparent seeing a grandchild sing well, play a piano well, run a race well, just walk all over, you know, walk or pick flowers all over the soccer field, but that's my grandchild and I love them. And there's this pride that isn't a self-centered, it's love-based. And that's Paul to these people. He said, it's not going to be wasted. So then number four, not only are we going to share this message of life as we work out our own salvation, but number four, surrender my interests for the good of others. We learn this from Paul. We learn this from Jesus. Paul says in verse 17, okay, he doesn't know exactly how he's gonna die, but he understands that he's laying it all down on the line. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So he's still using that language of the, the lamb and the offerings. Like it cost the lamb his life. It wasn't just a partial, uh, we'll take a, you know, one little, we'll take your tail. It was his life. So he's, he's willing to lay it all down. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial, sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I think I've told you before about a, a man, young man named William Borden. If you grew up in the Chicago area, Borden Dairies, that's a huge dairy. William Borden was an heir to that, that family fortune in that company. And he, he went to the greatest of colleges, but God did a work in him. And he was burdened for the people, Muslim people in China. And he walked away from the entire family fortune. 25 years of age, he stopped off in Cairo, Egypt to learn Arabic. There, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died. 25 years old. When people look in on that situation, what's a common assessment of what happened there? What would people normally say when they look at what happened? 25 years old, was on his way to China to minister to hard-to-reach people, Muslims in China, and dies. Wouldn't people often say, what a waste. What a tragedy. That's, that's just too bad. Oh, that shouldn't have turned out that way. But here's what they found written in his Bible. I wonder if you write things in your Bible for people to read after you're gone. Things that really matter. What will people read when you're gone? What will they know about you when you're gone? If you don't tell them, they won't know it. If you don't write it down, they won't read it. This is what he wrote down in the back of his Bible. When he was willing to go, he wrote it this way. First of all, no reserves. That's what Paul is talking about right here. No reserves. When Paul says, I'm laying it all out, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, 
This may cost me my life. No reserves. I'm not holding anything back. And I wonder if we have made that commitment to the Lord this morning, or if we're talking like an 80-20 deal or a 90-10, you know, 90. No, are we completely surrendered to the Lord? That's Paul, no reserves, even if I am to be poured out. And then they found written under that in his Bible, under that they said he wrote down no retreats. Burn the ships is the idea there. I'm not going to go reclaim and start over. And how about that, you know, family fortune uh, still available? No retreats. I'm not going back. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What is he saying? I'm all in. And I'm not going back. I'm not repenting of this. And with that, William Borden set out for his ministry. Then he got sick. And he added this line in his Bible. No regrets. No regrets. And that's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I may be poured out. This may cost me my life. And I'm not going back. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He says, I'm doing touchdown dances over what God is doing in you. I am glad and rejoice with you all. He's describing ultimate surrender, and he's saying, and this is awesome, and I love you, and Christ has done so much in me and in you, and I have no regrets. Come on now, people. This is a leader you want to follow. This is a leader like a general that stands up before his men before they go into the heat of the battle and he reminds them of why they're there and what's at stake. And he says, it may cost us our lives today. And that general leads the way. And people, but they cannot help but man up and get their uniform back together and put it together and follow him to the heat of the battle because they've been reminded it will be worth it all. And we have freedom because people have paid that price in, a, in, in our land in such a way, but ultimately we have that freedom in our souls because Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, Hebrews says. And he's ascended. First Thessalonians 2.19, this is what Paul writes to these believers. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting, of glorying before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? Do you hear what Paul is saying? Jesus, look at these people you've redeemed out of Africa, out of Zambia, out of Romania out of all of these different countries where we have partners, where we've been, and this is the joy, and this is the glory. And listen, loved ones, there's nothing else that matches that. Not a new car, not a new job, not a new house, not a new relationship. It doesn't touch this. Paul says, this is where I boast. So surrender my interests for the good of our others. And lastly, when we serve Christ and one another with joy. So Paul, just, he, he just pushes this right there. He writes it and he's like, look at what, this is costing me everything and I'm, I'm, I'm just fired up about this. But then he says, hey, 
What do you say? What about you? Where are you at in this race, in this fight? Serve Christ and one another with joy. And so the invitation, it's like he just pushes the door wide open and says, come on in. There's no capacity limit here. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What's he saying? Come on in. The water's fine. Let's go. Come on. Everybody, let's go follow me as I follow Christ. That's a leader. Loved ones, expect this mindset for your church leaders. Don't expect this mindset to happen all the time in political leaders or your management where you work if they're not Christians. But if you're a follower of Christ and you're a leader and you are in some realm, some influence that you have, lead like this. Serve Christ and one another and it's with joy. Isn't that radically different than, okay, what do you need me to do? You know, here I am, grumbling, complaining, grumbling, complaining. I'm serving, all right. I showed up almost on time, you know. <laughs> Expect this mindset in your church leaders. Paul is saying, I'm all in. Come on. But then he doesn't leave it there. And he says, experience this joy for yourself. Join me. Go all in with me. Get in on this. Don't be a spectator. Don't watch life go by and you're living for the here and now. I think it was Calvin that said, what, what, a, what a just an awful thing that it is to live like a pig and all you're doing is rooting around with your nose in the dirt after the acorns and you never looked up and you saw the massive oak tree. Paul is saying, get your eyes up, get your head up. Jesus is coming. This is where life is lived to the fullest. This is how we shine our light when we stop all complaining and arguing. Somehow I just know somebody in my family is going to just come at me with this today or this week. It's going to happen. I know it is. And we stand out as children of God. We share the message of life and we surrender our self-interest for the good of others, and together, oh, won't we serve Christ and one another with joy? Does that describe your heart and life today? Let's stand together. May the Lord help us to apply what we've heard and what we've learned today. Father, This word, this command, this life, I'm desperately in need of you and your spirits. I cannot do this on my own. We cannot do this on our own, Lord. So we run to you. We cry out to you. We ask you for your help. Thank you that you are 
present with us in trouble, in times of difficulty. Thank you that you are not bothered when we cry out to you in pain, when we cry out to you in grief, when we cry out to you in sorrow. We can go to you, we can go with others to you, and we can take every care, every concern of our hearts and lives and bring it to you and you will hear what we have to say and you will love us and you will change us and you will forgive us and you will make us more like Christ. Father, I pray for those who have not yet become followers of Jesus Christ, that today they would surrender everything to you, that they would lay it all on the altar, Father. That is what we're called to be as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to you, Lord. This is our spiritual worship. This is reasonable because you have given all for us. So help us to live this out for your glory and the good of all people around us. And we ask you this in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.